Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. It's my pleasure today to have one of my mentors, a hero of mine, Brian Sullivan, who is author of Sandler Enterprise Selling. He designed the Sandler Enterprise Selling program and the book itself has been taken up by McGraw-Hill, which is indication of just how good it is. And in fact, Top Sales World has voted it one of the top 50 selling books of all time. So, Brian, live up to that introduction. Well, thank you, Marcus. I wish I could do better than that, but I think we should probably just conclude the call, and I'll wish you well. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Absolutely. Uh, Short and hard-hitting, we promised, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Brian, can you give a quick two-minute intro into your journey to where you are today, your background in terms of enterprise sales, and how you ended up being headhunted by Dave Matson to build the Sandler Enterprise Selling System? Yeah, so great question. So I grew up in selling at Xerox Corporation. I spent five years at Xerox and left Xerox to join a company called Capgemini, which is where I spent the next 30 years. And 10 years into my tenure at Capgemini, I met a guy named Dave Matson, who, as many folks know, is the CEO of Sandler Training. I met Dave when we were looking at some new sales processes, and we made a decision to go with Sandler on a global basis. Now, for those of you familiar with Capgemini, you'd be aware that we sell and sold into really large accounts as a matter of course. It's what we did. So I was involved, as were some of my colleagues, with taking the fundamental Sandler selling system and enhancing it because we faced some really unique challenges in selling into the enterprise world as opposed to small businesses. Got to know Matson really well over time. Dave saw what we were doing at CAP and ultimately said to me, you know, why don't you come on over here and build that program for us because it's something that we need. So after working on me for 20 years, he finally succeeded. And on my 30th anniversary, came over to join Sandler in 2012 and built this program, which we're rocking with worldwide now, Marcus. Excellent. Thanks, Brian. So tell me something. What's the difference between a traditional transactional salesperson and an enterprise salesperson? So, you know, we get that question a lot, right? What's the difference between selling into small and medium-sized businesses and selling into large enterprise accounts? And it really comes down to the unique challenges of selling into enterprise accounts that you don't face in selling into small and medium-sized businesses. It's all about pain, Marcus, as you know. Our founder, David Sandler, one of his most iconic quotes is, no pain, no sale. And we view enterprise selling in exactly the same vernacular. The difference between enterprise selling and fundamental selling is the fact that you deal with very, very unique and, and challenging situations. So can I talk about pain then? Typically, an enterprise sale has an extended sales cycle. What are the particular qualities and challenges that a long sales cycle brings? Yeah, so that's a great question. I was actually just in a meeting a a couple hours ago with a potential new franchisee of ours who's going to be in Fort Worth, Texas. And he was telling me that in the business he's in, steel fabrication, their average sales cycle takes three years. How long? Yeah, that's a long sales cycle, right? But it's certainly not unheard of. And the longer the sales cycle goes, the more doubt, the more uncertainty, 
the more risk enter into it for the selling organization. But for selling organizations that are good at what they do and have effective processes that they follow, a long sales cycle can actually be an advantage because in a long sales cycle, you are not evaluated by the prospect in a vacuum. You are evaluated as part of a a mini focus group, if you will, which consists of you and your competitors. Every hoop that you're going to be asked to jump through, your competitors are as well. Every deliverable you need to meet, they're going to need to meet as well. So your ability to be really good at responsiveness and follow-up and attention to detail can put you in a really good light. Because when you're able to show the prospect during the pursuit what your organization is made of, they get a better vision of what you'll be as a partner and the increasing, of course, the likelihood that you'll win the business. This then raises a couple of very interesting questions around understanding your competition. You're bound to be very sophisticated and also minimizing the cost of pursuits and getting an early qualified out because the cost of pursuit must be very high. No question. You and I have a colleague in Austin, Texas. Here I am giving two Texas examples. Very, very Yankee of me, right? You and I have a colleague in Austin who was meeting with a uh, prospect about six months ago, president of a company in Austin. And she told him, she said, every time I make a decision to pursue an opportunity, it costs me $40,000. Win or lose, it costs me $40,000. So she said to our colleague, she said, if you can help me determine that the deals I go after, I have just a smaller increased chance to win. And if you can also help me understand that when I'm in the middle of one of these really expensive deals, I know whether to put my foot on the gas or to get the heck out. That's kind of the vision of it. But of course, as you know, Marcus, that's really, she's really just talking about the financial aspects of a long sales cycle. You know, there's so much more. Absolutely, Brian. So the financial cost is one thing, but there's the opportunity cost where you have cross-functional sales teams. And if you're selling direct into enterprise. That's one thing. But if you're now involving multiple partners, the cost and the opportunity cost and the resource appetite can be massive. So what can we do in order to help people to eliminate the uncertainty and get out of the wrong pursuits early? Yeah, so that's a great question. Let me just elaborate on the problem you indicated though, Marcus. I mean, channel partners and their involvement in your pursuit That's clear as a bell. There's an opportunity cost there. Even internal to your organization, in team selling, you're marshalling all of the important resources of your organization on your team to help win the deal. And when you get someone from accounting and someone from marketing and finance and legal, these are people that have day jobs. And when they drop whatever they're doing, it causes delays or causes initiatives to get completely stopped. So there's a huge opportunity cost So as our friend in Austin said, you better be making the right bets. So how can you increase the likelihood you make the right bets? Well, I mean, it starts at its very fundamental nature to make certain that you're dealing with the right types of accounts, that you've identified the accounts you want to target based on a profile that you have. And then, of course, once you've identified the right accounts, every single opportunity needs to be vetted. You mentioned earlier, work for the no as quickly as you possibly can, right? I mean, getting a no is a gift. It's a huge gift that we receive. So, you know, we have tools in Chandler Enterprise Selling, 
Number one, to help you identify the right types of accounts that match your profile. And number two, to help you identify the critical business issues tied to an opportunity to identify if you have risk or not. And if you do have risk, can you mitigate it as quickly as possible? And if you can, it stares you right in the face that you probably should get out of the deal. How do you teach people to identify the right tools to use at the right time? What's the kind of approach that Sandra Enterprise Selling teaches in order to ensure that enterprise sales leaders are get using the right tools consistently across their organization and sharing that information? So that's a great question. You identify a couple of the tools there. You mentioned Pursuit Navigator and, and the Competitor Impact Tool. We have 19 tools in the program now. When we published the book with McGraw-Hill in 2015, we had 13 tools. At that point in time, we made a commitment to the marketplace that we were going to run the program for two full years, and then we were going to get feedback from Sandler trainers and our clients all over the world as to some areas in the sales process that we might not have been touching but could really use our help. And one of them, one of them was the competitor area. We heard from clients that when they were analyzing a competitor, that quite often the types of processes and tools available to them were so data-driven, so analytically oriented, that they would get bogged down when all they wanted to do was learn how to kick ABC companies' butts in a given deal. So we built a competitor impact tool to address just that. You know it well. It identifies 10 functional areas. You pick the ones that matter in a particular deal, and they're the ones that you focus on. But that's just an example of one tool. How do we decide which tools to engage with which clients at different points in time. We go through a basic discovery process, Marcus, as you well know, and we walk through with the client their sales process and we identify things that they do really well and we identify things that they might do not so well. And the fact of the matter is, if they have a process to evaluate their competitors in a deal, it's a good process. We think that's awesome. Our intention is not to drop our tools over their current business model. If they do something well, we want to incorporate that in the way that we do business. So we identify the areas of greatest need. Those are the ones that when we roll out a program, Marcus, as you know, we typically attack first, perhaps in some type of boot camp setting, if you will. And then the areas that might have a, you know, a little bit less of an impact from a triage standpoint, we wrap those into our reinforcement program. Excellent. Certainly, I've been using the SES tools now for a couple of years with my clients. And what I've found is that simply thinking strategically about your territory, your marketplace, your existing accounts helps them to focus their attention. And going back to your client over in Texas, being able to very rapidly identify where the growth potential is, because certainly the thing that I've realized over the years is all the glamour is associated with getting net new business, the new logo pursuit. But the real profit, which is what I'm really interested in, comes from expanding existing accounts. And I was working with a managed service provider client of mine, and they were sweating blood over growing their business by 20% this year. Using the care tool, in 20 minutes, the five different divisions averaged 153% growth potential just within their top 20% accounts. So again, one of the really important takeaways that I've had from using SES is that 
you need to really concentrate your energy on those things that you can and will win and where your best opportunities lie. And this requires a good understanding of your marketplace, the complex decision structures, the diverse buyer network, and really to be able to focus on the business value that you're going to be able to bring to your customers, because that will tell you where to assign resource, where you should spend your energy, and what you should avoid wasting time on. So I'm really curious, do you have any stories from the field of how people have applied the SES tools and principles in order to scale their business aggressively? And I'm talking triple digit plus growth. The example you just shared is it, it is a great one with your managed service provider. And I think you actually had something on LinkedIn about that, which is awesome. And that, you know, shared aspects of the care tool, which has, as you know, Marcus, it's become rather ubiquitous. It touches virtually everything. But yeah, you know, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of really quality stories. One that comes to mind, because I was just having a conversation with our colleague this morning, this client's in the mobile forensic space. It's a truly global organization, and we're working with them. They're big SES clients, and we're working with them for Pursuit Navigator because they wanted to build a really retraceable logic for their ability to make go-no-go decisions. In the session about Pursuit Navigator, the CEO was in the room and he jumped on one of the business issues in Pursuit Navigator, which is executive level interaction. We say is if you can't get executive level interaction on an opportunity, that's a major red flag. And the CEO said, you know what? I think that's critical here, but I want to take it way back to my account planning because if this is an organization that won't go C to C with me, I don't even want to pursue their opportunities. I don't want to pursue them as an account. So that's kind of like the framework, the mindset that Sandler Enterprise Selling drops on organizations because if you don't waste your time pursuing accounts that don't meet your profile, you're never going to be at the point where you have to worry about their opportunities. So it's really about doing what which makes sense, Marcus. It's really about business reason. Well, that makes perfect sense. In fact, I interviewed Jay McBain, the head uh, principal analyst for Channels at Forrester, and he made a really interesting point, which is that in 2019, 80% of all technology purchases will be driven by the line of business. Now, this has massive implications for anyone selling technology that you have to get out of IT and into the line of business. And the whole piece around the C-suite, making sure that you've identified who that cast of characters is, becomes essential, particularly when you're talking about massive cost of pursuit. If it's $40,000 per pursuit, how many pursuits do you have to begin in order to get one to final stage? You know, you could be talking three, four, five. And if your close rate is one in three or one in five at that point, you could easily sink the best part of a million bucks in order to win one decent piece of business. As you know, it scales, Marcus, because some people might be listening to this podcast and say, oh, you know, $40,000, that's not my world. That's, we're nowhere near that. And you know, that may be the case, but in some situations, that only scratches the surface. You know, I like to talk about, there was a, a major deal let by uh, the United States Department of the Army for two bidders. It went to Harris Corporation and Motorola Technologies, and they won 
They won identical $469 million awards. I guarantee you the amount of money they spent going after the business, a lot more than $40,000. And as you say, you know, with, with that awesome insight that Jay shared about the new technology targets within an organization, it lends itself beautifully to the issue we have with the diversity of the buyer network. I mean, if you, if you have people who are simply skilled at dealing with purchasing, they came to the wrong place because you absolutely, in enterprise accounts, have to deal with purchasing, but you have to deal with everyone. And all these different people, they bring their functional frames of reference to the table. So you need clearly to understand why the attorney is saying what they're saying, why the marketing person is saying what they're saying, but it goes beyond function. I mean, think about everything we know about behavioral profiling, Marcus. Think about selling into a small and medium-sized business where you often have the opportunity to sit across the desk from the owner or the president of the firm. You do your best to make a determination about their behavioral profile. And at Sandler, we are very, very big on disk. But carry that forward to dealing with a large organization where you've got the attorney, you've got the finance person, you've got someone from accounting, someone from purchasing. Again, as I just mentioned, each bringing their different functional profiles. But oh my gosh, they're also different behavioral profiles. So is the legal person a high D? Yeah, probably. How are they interfacing as a high D with the high C, who's the accounting person, who, by the way, bring different functional frames of reference? So the whole perspective just it becomes exponentially more complicated. If you don't show up prepared, you're going to be slaughtered by your sophisticated competitors. Absolutely. And your analogy of herding cats is a fantastic one. There was an advert years back that you showed from, was it EDS? It was, yes. Cat herding. Again, the challenge here, for those of you listening, is that all these people come with a different personal agenda. They have, they're not necessarily in concert. And as an enterprise salesperson, it's your job to create that alignment, that common purpose, and make sure that everybody's needs are met. I always equate it to, I'm a big fan of the Big Bang Theory uh, TV series. And it's like playing 3D chess. Everyone else is playing checkers or drafts. And you need to be thinking three-dimensionally. And my hero on this is Napoleon. I've mentioned it a couple of times. Napoleon decided which general would surrender to him at the village of Austerlitz two years before a French soldier ever left French soil. And he planned every battle, every skirmish meticulously. He planned contingencies. And to my mind, that's really where an enterprise salesperson differs wildly from a transactional salesperson. A transactional salesperson sells one-to-one. An enterprise salesperson sells one-to-many and then has to be like a general bringing their resources. So they're bringing the heavy artillery of marketing. They're bringing the sniper fire of the technology team. They're bringing the sappers of the legal team. And all of these different people need to be lined up in concert at the right time, having the right conversations with the right people about the right stuff in the right way. And that requires a very different skill set. So I'd like to explore a little bit about recruiting quality enterprise salespeople. What are the key qualities that you look for when you're helping people recruit their enterprise sales team? Well, that's a great question. And it really lends itself to what you're just sharing because you're laying out 
in order to be successful in dealing with a complex buyer network, team selling, it has to be the way you go to market. It can't just be a tagline. It has to be your business model. You know, a lot of organizations say, oh, yeah, yeah, we do team selling. We have four-legged sales calls. We do that stuff, right? Sales manager flies in and travels with the sales rep every couple months. That's not team selling. Team selling is the true collaboration and communication in a team to win a deal. And when you've done that, you have a salesperson, as you just indicated, at the helm. So I really think it's critical for a person not only to come from an environment and be able to prove your ability to be a key leader in teamwork-type environments, project-type environments. When we hired kids right out of school, Marcus, one of the best backgrounds that I used to find was someone who had waited tables. Because when you wait tables, or when you act as a server, right, in lots of different languages, we say it a different way, you are the face of the franchise for the table. You are the person who, in many ways, dictates whether the person sitting at the table is going to have a good time. But you're backed up by the kitchen. You're backed up by the hostess, by the valets who park the cars. But it's all about you. So you need to marshal all the resources to make sure make certain that person has a great time. But still, it, it is all about you. So it's a really unique combination of a person with a strong ability to act on their own, but also to no teamwork, but from a leadership standpoint. That really raises another really important question, which is what kind of activity happens in the shadows back at the vendor's home office that ensures that when they're actually facing the customer, all these things work like clockwork? In a large deal, from a team selling standpoint, the facing the customer needs to be something that everyone is involved in. Because remember, again, you've got this complex buyer network where you have, you know, for example, an attorney you're dealing with. So, Marcus, you're a sales guy. I'm a sales guy, right? What happens when a salesperson is typically going one-on-one with an attorney, a lawyer from a prospect organization? We probably don't speak the same language. Yeah, it's usually not a very pretty picture, right? One of my favorite Ben Franklin quotes is, a man between two lawyers is like a fish between two cats, right? And there's a reason for that. So what about the concept of engaging your corporate counsel, who, remember, again, is on your selling team, and have them be in communication with the lawyer from the prospect organization in the pursuit? They're going to get all those legal issues covered. They're going to get the semicolons and the debentures out of the way much more easily than you and I are ever going to be able to do that, Marcus. And, you know, you might even get a little bit of a, oh, yeah, by the way, where did you go to law school? And do you know Barkley Harris, right? So that type of communication happens and and you have perished the thought, the beginnings of a functional relationship between the two attorneys. And that can only bode well because in the pursuit, you're exposing the prospect organization to the depth and breadth of your organization. And you might even having two people get to know each other a little bit, which is also a really good thing. Absolutely. I mean, people ultimately will buy from people. And if you haven't been able to establish those relationships, then chances are that may be the slight edge. Antonio Garrido has a lovely phrase, which is different is better than better. And you sell, you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. At the end of the day, Oracle and SAP, they basically sell similar sorts of stuff. 
Amazon Web Services and Google, they kind of sell similar sort of stuff. Unless you are differentiating in the sale by how you manage that relationship, then the odds are extremely high that at some point that relationship will be leveraged by a smart competitor. Yes, that's a key point, you know, but the different has to be not about you. It has to be about the prospect. You're going to identify eccentricities of that prospect organization that are specific to them. And you're going to react to that by using the assets that your organization brings to the table. If you discover that their attorney wants to have no part of talking to an attorney from your organization, for you to try and shoehorn that in is a really bad idea. But you need to be able to understand what's most important to them in order to be able to react. You've got competitors who bring a lot to the table in the enterprise world. You have competitors you need to account for. They come prepared. And so for you to be attacking these opportunities without the same level of sophisticating, sophistication and strategy and planning is folly. Absolutely. This then brings me to the next question, which is, if you're head of sales, how do you manage enterprise salespeople? What are the tools that you've, uh, we provide in order to help you do that? What are the levels of accountability that need to be put in place? In most situations, you're going to have the typical levels of oversight and compliance that are brought to you by the cast of characters, the collaboration sites, the CRM, and all of that. And that's all well and good. Call them sales enablement. Call them, call them whatever you choose to. But you, as the leader, need to be able to put assets in the hands of your sales team that will help them win deals. And I'm talking about assets such as the ones we've been mentioning so far. An ability to create an organizational lexicon around the different types of accounts so that when the salesperson is marshalling all those resources on a pursuit, they don't have to explain that, yeah, the prospect organization, they have 800 people, they're headquartered in Reading, blah, blah, blah. Just say, hey, It's an A account. It's an attain account. Bang. Immediately, everybody gets it. So as a leader, if you can structure your organization so that it understands the framework and is culturally positioned to team sell, those are the most critical aspects. That's how you build fertility for a sales rep and a sales team. Well, this is, again, really interesting because I think developing a common language and a common process is one aspect of it but also understanding where you are and having that shared lexicon to make sure that everybody understands where you are in the pursuit and what happens next. That clarity is crucial because I think ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. And when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost of pursuit and the potential loss of lifetime revenue of five, 10 years worth of revenue, that could then expand and mushroom. I think there are certain things that need to be built in culturally. So one of the lessons that I'm teaching my clients at a management level is it's an act of gross misconduct to not do a pre-call plan for every touch. It's an act of gross misconduct not to invest at least three hours of rehearsal for every hour there in front of the prospect. And it's an act of gross misconduct not to do a written and verbal post-call debrief and then modify the pre-call plan for the next step. 
And you'd be amazed. Well, you probably wouldn't be amazed because you've been around the houses a while. I'm still stunned by the number of people who kind of tolerate this half-baked, wishy-washy approach to their planning and their execution because they don't rehearse the technical people who then spill their guts, end up lengthening the sales cycle, increase cost in the mind of the prospect and reduce the probability of closing. They don't plan, so then they get hit on the side of the head by a question that they could have prepared for. And they don't ask fantastic questions. One thing that really flabbergasts me is just how much waste there is in enterprise sales. So can you talk to me about some of the ways that through applying Sandler Enterprise Selling, the tools and the system and the methodology, that we've been able to help our clients to become hyper-efficient? It's pretty simple, Marcus. I mean, you just laid out the basis of it, the fact that planning and debriefing should be fundamental things that everyone, all the sales reps do. I'll take it to the next step that those processes that you go through, they need to be collaborative processes. So when you're building that pre-call plan for your meeting that you're going to be having with Sean Thompson coming up, you're going to share that electronic pre-call planning tool with other members of your selling team electronically, perhaps as simply as an attachment to an email, or maybe you put it, you're integrated into CRM or you're putting it out on the collaboration site, but you're going to want to get feedback from people. First of all, John Thompson might be an ex-CFO, so you're going to get some feedback from your finance person, and she's going to say, Marcus, I would think about asking the other question this way, because the CFO is going to want to think about it in these terms, or you might even have someone who knows Sean from a previous life, or someone who knows Sean's organization more effectively and deeply than you do. They're going to have awesome insights for you. So these tools, more than just a powerful vehicle of preparation for a salesperson, they're collaboration and communication vehicles to bring team selling to life. Absolutely. So again, I want to bring in a few more of the tools because I think what you've done is fantastic. The Growth Account Booster allows us to look back historically, see a snapshot of where we are, and visualize the future. The Account Retention Tool, again, there's little or no point getting stuff in through the front door to let it out of the back door. And then looking at the client squared tool in terms of where the expansion potential is within a specific account, partner networks, joint ventures, sister companies, subsidiaries, supply chain, all of these offer organic growth potential. And then tie that with the client-centric satisfaction tool and the quarterly value review. In fact, can we spend a little bit of time on the client-centric satisfaction tool and why that's such a critical, pivotal piece of sales technology? Very simple, but very effective. Absolutely. And you know, Marcus, simplicity is really what this is all about. The SES tools are not created with the objective of compliance or oversight or documentation. They're created to help you win business. And we're dealing with sales guys like you and me, right? We've got to keep it simple. We've got to keep it really straightforward. And that's what we do with these tools. And you mentioned the client-centric satisfaction tool which is one that I know you love. So what do we typically see with the concept of uh, client satisfaction or customer satisfaction, whatever you want to call it, customer sat as the abbreviation? What we typically see is at the beginning of a relationship, a sales rep will tell the new client 
oh, by the way, we're going to have a satisfaction form slash survey slash whatever. We're going to give that to you in about six months and you're going to tell us how we're doing. And everybody shakes their heads and they move on and lots of different transactions follow. And six months down the road, the sales rep typically comes back and delivers that form, maybe in person, maybe even by email or whatever. And the client will look at it and see these criteria that have been created by the vendor, if you will. Perhaps even more scary, maybe created by their marketing department or their product development people. And the client looks at them and the criteria have nothing to do with what matters to them. So take a whole different look at it and imagine starting that engagement after you've won the business and then going to the client, sitting down in a discussion, a give and take discussion after contract is signed. Really critical. The contract is signed, that the business relationship has begun, then saying to the client, I'd like you to tell me what's most important to you in this relationship. And to make it easy, I'm going to share with you 10 or 12 factors, satisfaction factors. And let's have a discussion. I want you to tell me the top five for you, and I want you to prioritize them. You set the stage for the most amazing discussion you're ever going to have with that client. Because if you go back six weeks when you were in the middle of the pursuit, when you were going after the business up against those tough competitors, and you had gone to that same now client, then prospect, and asked the same question, what's most important to you? What are they going to say? They're going to say, Marcus, cut your prices, cut your delivery schedules, give me more pro bono services, gimme, 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 because that's where things are at that point in the buyer-seller dance. They're a prospect, you are a bidding vendor. After the deal is signed, everything changes. The honesty needle points north. In many ways, you're on the same side of the desk. So at that point, if you say, tell me what's most important to you, the client knows that sharing that information with you increases the likelihood you'll be successful. And that means they'll be successful. Your successes are their successes. You learn amazing things from this client-centric satisfaction discussion. You then take the results back. You share it with your entire team. As a matter of fact, Let's imagine that the client might have chosen communication as the number one factor and knowledge transfer as the second one. And you know, you as the sales guy, you're talking to your technical manager who was right at your side throughout that pursuit, getting beaten up when you were going after the business. And you say, communication, wow, was that mentioned in the pursuit? Your technical manager says, nope, not a word. Then you say, what about knowledge transfer? Did anybody say anything about that? Tech manager said, didn't hear a word of it. The two of you put your heads together and you say, you know what, since communication sounds like it's so important, why don't we take our status meetings, which we set up originally as bi-monthly, let's move them to monthly, because it sounds like communication is important. And this knowledge transfer thing, why don't we have our client's junior level project manager, Heather, why don't we have Heather sit in on our weekly training sessions? When you send that email to your client and you say, thanks so much for helping me out, by telling us what's so important to you. As a result of that, we'd love to change the status meetings from bi-monthly to monthly, and we'd love to have Heather sit in on our weekly meetings. That client is going to be so happy, not only because they know that you listen to them, but because you've taken two actions that likely wouldn't cost you a penny, but which directly address what's most important to them. They're going to be reading that email, and their socks are going to be going up and down, and you will have magically increased your chances of being successful.
Absolutely. And then when you come back and you're doing your quarterly value review instead of the usual quarterly business review, which is essentially a badly dressed up sales pitch, you're able to use that feedback in order to get the prospect to tell you what they're happy about and how the relationship is delivering value to them. So what I'm really interested in also is how we use the Team Storm tool to get both our own team to improve and solve problems within the account, but how we can use that in conjunction with the customer. Yes, I just had an amazing discussion this morning with a colleague of ours whose IT services client selling almost exclusively to the U.S. federal government, and they were slaughtered recently with the government shutdown. So a good bit of their services revenue required basically the door to be open. So they got slaughtered. So they asked our colleague, friend, to come down and run a brainstorming session with them, a brainstorming session which we call Team Storm. Again, Marcus, as you know, the simplest gosh darn topic you can ever imagine, starting with the problem statement, how to more effectively manage government shutdowns. They brought all their key executives into the room. The session lasted about 90 minutes, and they exited that session with five key action items accountable with people's names next to them and dates so that by the next time we have one of those shutdowns, and trust me, we will, (laughs) the next time we have one of those, this organization is going to be so much more well-positioned. Now, that deals with the problem, right, which is the typical way we use TeamStorm as a brainstorming piece. It also can be awesome for opportunities. Imagine having a major client of yours where you've got a sales team and then you've got a delivery team, maybe IT integrators, if you will, who day in and day out are building systems and developing applications, heads down doing all the things that IT folks do. Imagine pulling those people out for a brown bag pizza lunch every couple months and run a team storm with the problem statement being something like how to take every advantage of growing our business with ABC company. Asking these people who typically are focused on delivery to lift their head up and think about ways to grow the business, it is one of the most amazing events you will ever have happen. Now, of course, it helps if you've got some comp plans built that give a little bit of a kicker to the delivery folks for growing the business. But boy, when you give people an opportunity to come up with ideas for growing business, amazing things happen. So Team Storm, it's great. Well, again, this is one of the other really important elements, I think, of an enterprise salesperson, that they can marshal all these different resources and encourage them to open up and speak freely. So in terms of the qualities, I mean, you touched on it earlier in terms of personality style. What are the typical personality styles and characteristics that make for a great enterprise sales salesperson? I think you're looking at a person from a behavioral profiling standpoint who is um, a bit of a utility person, if you will. You Certainly, you're going to have a person with some good eye capabilities. You definitely want to have someone with the leadership capabilities. It's really about, you know, the work with. You know, at CAP, we used to always talk work with. You need to be able to evaluate a person's interest in working with other people, especially in that technology space, Marcus which is so critical because in the technology space, there's still a little bit of the old division between the sales guys 
and the laborers, if you will, right? And that division is a problem if people think that way. The salespeople need to be enmeshed in the technology, need clearly to understand it. And the technology people need clearly to understand that they should be focused on growing an account. So it's this concept of selling and delivery working together, not as a sales team, not as a delivery team, but as an account team that creates that real work with mentality. I think it's fair that certainly within technology that's required, but I think across all 26 verticals now, it's really important if you're selling enterprise that you have those characteristics. I don't see how you can sell enterprise unless you do. Well, no. And one of the reasons is that technology has become rather ubiquitous, right? I mean, it's almost like oxygen. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, what's a technology account these days versus a non-technology account? When you talk all the stuff that's going on with manufacturing and process control and shop floor and inventory, where's technology? It's everywhere. The services mentality, the project mentality, the team delivery, we see it everywhere. Jay McBain says that every business is going to become, if they haven't already, a technology company. And 60% of executives' time is currently spent on tech. So frankly, you have no choice. So let's take this slightly further. What I'm really interested in, as you know, having helped us enormously with the book Making Channel Sales Work, in the channel space, the channel marketplace is changing beyond all recognition. The channel has changed more in the last 18 months than it has in the last 30 years. And 75% of all product is now sold through partners. No matter what the vertical is, 75%. In fact, tech looks like it's going to move to 90% within the next seven or eight years. So this opens up some really interesting questions because increasingly, you're going to find that partners will be selling with partners. And the vendor is going to be one tiny element of the stack that forms the overall solution. And increasingly, the ability to program manage the complexity of a sale will become a much higher priority because you're going to have literally dozens or hundreds of people involved across maybe seven to 10 vendor organizations with all of their partners involved in the execution, implementation, and the sales process. So my question is this, as we start to move into this very complex, highly sophisticated world, how can one use these tools in order to simplify, rationalize, and focus? Well, first of all, to address your comment there, which is spot on, it's really just team selling, Marcus, whereas we're talking building the internal team by you know, engaging marketing and accounting and finance on your selling team. In many cases, before you even think about doing that, your partners are already there. Your partners are, in many ways, more engaged than the other members of your selling team. So whether you're talking about bringing in one of your distribution partners to help you win a deal or bringing in your attorney, it should be the mindset that they are all partners. They're all partners to help you win a piece of business. And the tools, the tools provide the acceleration, and as I mentioned before, the collaboration and communication that drive those folks collectively to win a piece of business. Without them, even you're flying blind, right? If you don't follow some type of racy process when you have a bunch of uh, cats and dogs together in the same room, if you haven't created an organizational lexicon around things like care, if you don't have 
electronic communication vehicles such as the pre-call planner tool to share across a network and to feed constructive comments to help win business, none of this stuff would work. But that's what the tools do. All 19 of them provide that vehicle for collaboration, Marcus. So what I'm really interested in then is how one can use the tools in order to help you identify which partners you should be bringing on board and where you should invest your time, money, and resources in your channel. A couple of friends of mine wrote a book recently called Making Channel Sales Work. And in it, 11 of these Sandler Enterprise selling tools are brought to life to do exactly what you just shared. You know, if you think about it, having care, having growth account booster in play for partnered pursuits, for partnered account management, that's really what it's all about. Again, the question you just asked, it kind of begs the same answer when you consider that I just shared with you, the team selling brings your partners in on the same team. It's really no different than if you're working some type of internal team with folks who get the same logo on their paycheck, or whether it's your partner, all of these people benefit from the big wins you get and should be extremely focused on giving their all to making it happen. Excellent. Brian, what I'd like to do is just wrap up. And what I'd like are some conclusions. In fact, a better question. If you were talking to your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Because I think an enterprise salesperson is probably going to be kicking in around that kind of age. What advice would you give to your 30-year-old self in terms of becoming a really effective enterprise salesperson? It comes down to a very simple mantra and that it's, it's not about you. It's about the prospect. And as long as you take that into account and you can avoid pushing any type of agenda or any type of vision of what that prospect's world should be, what that prospect's world should be begins and ends with the prospect's view of it. So all these tools, as you know, Marcus, are built with that in mind. You know, a value proposition tool. I mean, so many organizations think of value proposition as something developed by the L&D people or the product development folks. Let's get it out there, put it in the hands of the folks, get them on the phones and have them win some business. I mean, it could not be more wrong because the value proposition is what emanates from the prospect you're dealing with. So if I had to say it's not about you, that's really the mantra that matters across the board, Marcus. I want to refer back to the interview you recently did with Emma Barrett-Hoey. Yes. Uh, on customer experience, because I think what you've just touched on there really speaks to that. Why is it that so many vendors are so eye-centered? They're so selfish in their selling instead of really putting the customer at the heart and soul of everything that they do. Quite often, I think it's the result of infatuation with products and services that you have that in many cases, your fingerprints on the development of. So your concept of the world is that everybody needs this. I'm just going to go tell them about it. I mean, you know, it's how we feel about our kids, right? We feel good about our kids, but we also know that before we decide that they're going to go into painting or lacrosse or marching band, we should have a good idea of what's involved with those disciplines. So I think it really comes down to, and especially with leadership in organizations, when you've had your fingers all over developing something, you tend to be pushy about it. And it's just, it's the wrong way to go. 
One of the things that's really interested me in terms of the evolution of Sandra is the introduction of the Organizational Excellence Program, because what it forces us to do is introspect. It forces us to look at what made us successful in the past and challenge that and to let go. And I see a lot of big IT vendors at the moment that have historically done the drive-by shooting with the every three years coming around to sell some more licenses and the advent of the cloud and AI and RPA and Internet of Things and all these things are massively changing that landscape. And I think one of the big challenges is how enterprise salespeople need to be able to sell the new marketplace internally to their own management and help them become aware of the changes that are required. Because I don't think that many large vendors are likely to survive over the next 10 to 15 years because they will be taken by surprise in spite of the fact that they've been in the spotlight for probably five or 10 years by their Uber equivalent who comes along and through better planning, better understanding of the customer will take their market share away from them. And I think it's really essential that people in senior management start to let go of their kids and start to attack themselves through planning, through foresight, and making sure that they are structuring their business for how it's going to be rather than how it was. So I'd be very interested in your thoughts of how to integrate the organizational excellence piece into the future planning of sales, particularly enterprise and channel. Well, I think it's important to be as effective as we can be as an, as an organization and to continuously improve ourselves. But I take that organizational excellence piece into something I think you know is near and dear to my heart now, and it's the whole account retention piece. And I think the successful organizations, the logos that are going to remain on that slide 10 years from now, are the ones who don't view selling as an activity that only focuses on the sales team. To have their delivery team be hugely focused, not only on account retention, but on account growth, to arming them with all the skills, from the fundamental skills of even knowing how to do an upfront contract at the beginning of a meeting, to knowing how to utilize client squared for those five channels of growth when they're in meetings that the salespeople aren't in. When they're in the cafeteria having lunch with one of the clients who's traveling in from another country, these people need to be thinking account growth and account retention. That's the organizational excellence, which is going to keep those logos on the slide, regardless of everything we try to do to improve ourselves, Marcus. Excellent. Brian, thank you so much. This has been an inspiration and packed full of great content. Can't thank you enough for today, but also for all of your help over the last few years. It's been an absolute joy working with you. Any final words? Always an honor to be with you, my friend. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to spend time with you and your listeners. And uh, if I can help anyone in any way, they're certainly free to reach out to me, brian.sullivan at sandler.com. We also have a Sandler Enterprise Selling LinkedIn group, which everyone's free to join. It's not a Sandler propaganda site. We have good conversations about enterprise selling. But beyond that, I wish you all the best, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And for those of you who are still potentially interested in coming to the Client Summit, it's in March in Orlando. If you go to sandler.com and look up the Sandler Client Summit 2019, 
then there are going to be a thousand clients there. There's going to be people like Jane McBain speaking about how to accelerate the growth of your business. And there are going to be 350 to 500 Sander franchisees. So it's a fantastic opportunity to network and get a sense of how you can scale your business, achieve hyper growth, hyper profits without losing control. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling. Bye-bye.